0: My name is Tae Choi.
1: Hi, my name is Marco Jimenez, and we are the hosts of Full Cadence podcast.
0: Full Cadence believes in the power of the arts to sustain the human spirit. Through sharing stories of young artists in the performing, visual, and literary arts who are making a difference in their communities, we hope to inspire our listeners to examine how they can use their own talents and unique skill sets to do good.
1: We also aim to forge a network of artists dedicated to their craft and to advancing issues of social justice. Coupled with special episodes exploring the vast world of classical music, Full Cadence ultimately seeks to excite hope and joy
0: in our audience. If you would like to be featured on this podcast or would like to nominate someone, please feel free to contact us at fullcadencepodcast at gmail.com and follow us on our Facebook page and Instagram, links in the description. Our special guest for this episode is Jack Gallahan. Jack Gallahan is an 18-year-old cellist and recent graduate of Pine View School. Jack is currently taking a gap year to pursue intensive cello study with Dr. Helga Winold, professor emeritus at the Jacobs School of Music, and will be attending Princeton University in the fall of 2021 where he plans to study mathematics, physics, and music. Jack is passionate about leveraging the power of music to build community and is the founder and director of the Music for Medicine program at the Sarasota Memorial Hospital and the artistic director of Music Be the Food, Sarasota, a chamber music benefit concert series supporting the Church of the Palms Food Pantry. Originally from the seacoast of New Hampshire, Jack enjoys reading, longboarding, and composing in his free time. You can contact him after the show at jr, <coughs> jrgalahan11 at gmail.com. Jack, welcome to Full Cadence.
2: Hey guys, how are you? Thanks so much for having
1: me.
0: So, Jack, I mean, as,
1: as the director of Music for Medicine and, you know, Helping these people, and also as the director, music be the food. Obviously, have a lot of experience with music and the community. So, I would ask you: I mean, what sort of ways do you see? I mean, like the power of music to build community, to reach out to people. I mean, could you just talk a little bit about that, maybe?
2: Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think one of the um, most interesting things that I saw with if music be the food was basically putting on a concert. Is something that involves so many people um, working towards a singular thing, right? So, like you obviously saw that. Um, And you're a big part of that in which we have, you know, so many musicians coming to, uh, you know, rehearsals all throughout the week leading up to it, things like that. And then the church has a whole group of people working in the food pantry. And then of course, all the people come to the concert. So basically it's just that idea of having all these people. It must've been probably, you know, upwards of 200 people all coming together for the one purpose of supporting this food pantry. That's fundamentally different than the usual kind of, uh, Support that you 'd get for an issue of like food insecurity, for example, where you have you know individuals donating, um, which is great, but often it doesn 't have that same sense of solidarity or or unity within the community so basically the, the concept of musical performance is one that's that's fundamentally about having a large group of people doing one thing, and I think that can be really powerful with um, community engagement
0: so I was wondering as a uh, Music director of all these uh, musical programs for your community. I was wondering, how do you think the transition during this period of COVID and restrictions on audience sizes and concert spaces? Um, how do you think that's going to affect the music world in the long term?
2: Yeah, for sure, it's definitely a big challenge, and for for musicians, it's it's kind of um, you're not able to uh have this element of learning an instrument that's i think so important which is uh getting out there and playing for people and and that kind of grounds at least for me uh you know why you're spending all this time practicing uh basically seeing the impact that it can have on people Um, but i think that one uh, result is that it will definitely uh, cause musicians to become more creative in the ways that they interact with their audiences for sure so i mean on a very simple level Many organizations have adapted to the current circumstances by doing virtual performances. So, for example, earlier today, I just gave a performance at a at the Church of the Bombs, um for their live-streamed service. Um, and it's pretty weird to to like just play for a microphone, knowing that that's actually a lot of people. Um, but I think that doing that kind of uh, just increases the flexibility of, of you know performers and, and allows them to kind of try new things out. and um, One interesting thing is uh, the idea of doing Skype lessons. I never really even thought of that before, but I've been doing those with my teacher for a while, and they're surprisingly effective. So I think it's certainly making everybody more creative.
0: Uh, To go along with that, what role do you think art serves in a community?
2: I would say the main one is essentially unifying. So um, basically, uh, art is something that many, many people can agree on and it expresses kind of common values. That's kind of the, um, well, values is a little bit too specific of a word for it, common uh, um, emotional experiences or um, uh, you know, a wide variety of things that everybody kind of feels in a similar way. And so when you have a whole audience of people at a concert, um, that's something that kind of can break down many of the divisions and barriers that exist in you know, communities right now. Um, so I think that the main like active community role is basically just to, uh, to try to get people on the same page. I mean,
1: speaking to that, I think that the arts in general have a unique, in my opinion, a unique power to really communicate in a really visceral way. I mean, in terms of literature, um, poetry, art, even architecture, I think, and music, obviously, has this capacity to move us. So I was wondering what, what elements in Great art, do you think? What sort of elements are present that move us? Obviously, there are lots of different answers to this. I was curious, but your take on this is,
2: yeah. Well, I think it's very individual, and it you know, it's it's about um, connecting one's own life experience to a work of art. And a lot of times, great works of art are so kaleidoscopic, and they have so much in there that um, each person will connect with different elements of it in different ways. Like, for example, Mm -hmm. a Mahler symphony. Um, I think I heard forget which conductor it was, but it uh, might have been Gurdjieff, I'm not sure, but he, he said people love Mahler so much because there's so much in there that there's something for everybody. So
1: Yes, uh, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I was just going to say it's so funny about Mahler because I'm reminded of Mahler's exact quote, which is, a symphony shall contain the world. The only composer who yes, has said that. <laughs> he was
2: talking to Sibelius about that, wasn't he, when he said that, yeah, which is very different than what Sibelius thought about the symphony, but yeah, so so that's the idea, definitely, is that It contains uh, so much of uh, our life experiences. You know, Mahler Symphony is is such a huge uh, poetic and artistic uh, object that there's basically elements of it that all of us can relate to on a very personal level and um, are, you know, moved by in different ways.
0: Uh, So kind of what similarities and differences do you see in the way you approach physics and music?
2: I would say the most important to me would be the similarities. Um, and this is especially true with, with both math and physics. Um, and basically, I think of both of these areas as being fundamentally creative. And I think I, I probably wouldn't think about it that way if I uh, didn't do music in some way. Um, so for example, in math, the idea of solving a problem that you have never really seen before is fundamentally one about creating something out of nothing it's about uh thinking uh, about a new approach to the problem or taking an unconventional uh angle and that's what musicians do every day they're practicing a piece finding a new interpretation for it or composing a piece obviously so definitely uh approaching math and physics creatively is i think what i've gotten most uh out of that that uh connection or symbiosis between those two areas for sure well i mean so on the flip side of it Um, I think that this kind of, especially pertains to math, but um, being kind of interested in in math uh, gives me a a perspective on music that uh, basically I'm very interested in the structures in music and the um, uh, kind of architectural elements that can exist in music that are often very mathematical, like in Bach, for example. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, because um, from my understanding, both physics and music have Tangible theories and foundations uh, that govern its laws. I mean for physics, we have like, for example, Newtonian uh, laws of gravity for music, like you said, uh, laws of Baroque counterpoint uh, sonata form. uh, And just literally speaking the ink on the paper. Um, And in the deepest levels of physics and music. They both transcend the physical realm in the way they touch people. Um, so I was wondering, at what point mm-hmm. does physics or music uh, become more than the tangible and more uh, mm-hmm. transcend to the spiritual?
2: That's actually a really interesting question. I never, I've never really thought about that similarity and that they both have these uh, overarching structures that people work within uh, in order to achieve something greater than those structures themselves. That, that's very interesting. Yeah, definitely. I, I like the idea of, of um, imagination and that both fields are really about uh, realizing an imaginative goal or um, a fundamentally abstract goal and the systems are just a way of getting there. So like in physics you're interested in uh, constructing abstract uh, theories about the way the universe works and math for example is a tool that people use to describe those structures and in music you know a tonal chord progression is a structure you use to achieve a certain expressive aim. So yeah I mean I think that it takes uh, it takes uh, a very unique approach to be able to go beyond those those structures and obviously in music there's uh, a select few composers who have done so you know and in physics there's a select few who have been able to come up with something new I think that's a big challenge I think it's easy especially as a, a musician uh, an instrumentalist it's easy to get caught up in the ink on the page and the uh, you know the tangible elements of things mm-hmm. I guess the the uh, challenge of music in general is getting beyond those things for sure.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And it's pretty interesting. I mean, right? So you have music and physics, they also have, you know, like um, mystic poetry and all these other things that I don't, you know, attempt to transcend. So, I mean, yeah. are, um, are there any elements that you think that might, could, that, that are present in music or math or physics or poetry? Maybe like, are there any commonalities that maybe you see that? contribute to making certain art great or transcendent or have certain art touch people more than others? I mean, what are your thoughts on that?
2: Yeah, one of the things I was thinking about um, with that last question was another similarity is um, that in both areas, physics and uh, music, a lot of the most exciting, most interesting things, as you say, are um, when somebody defies the current structure, the current system, you know, so for example, the obvious examples are uh, quantum mechanics and and atonal mm-hmm. music. So, um, you know, in quantum mechanics, the whole structure that was set up before in order for people to achieve this aim of describing the universe was totally subverted. And similarly with Schoenberg and to a lesser extent skriabin if you want to argue that he also played a role in uh, dismantling tonality. So I think that one hallmark of all extremely um, successful things in music and physics is that there's something brand new and there's something uh, in, a, in a negative light, destructive, but in a positive light, imaginative. That's that, really like, interesting. I mean, I think, I think I, that's a, in some ways,
1: I mean, destruction, imagination, are two sides of <laughs> the same coin anyway. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. So, I, so one thing, I mean, so I was wondering if maybe you could talk a little bit about what aesthetics is. Um,
2: sure. Sure. So, I mean, the way I see aesthetics is just, since it's interested me, at least in my limited experience with the field is, uh, what can qualify as beautiful? What can qualify as art? And uh, is there any way that you can you know, uh, express what uh, characteristics all art has? And that's a very, very difficult task. I remember um, on the first day of my art history class um, in high school, um, We had to write an essay on what is art, and we all kind of read our responses. And I mean, it's an incredibly difficult question. I think people have been trying to answer it for a long time. Um, And basically, no matter what definition you come up with, you can always find some piece of art that that, uh, doesn't fit with that definition. So that's kind of how I see the field. But again, as I said, I'm not super knowledgeable about it. So,
1: I mean, as you see, what's the relationship between, like, you know, the subjective and objective elements of art, I guess, you know, the experiential dimension that was actually on paper?
2: Yeah, yeah. yes, this is a super interesting question to me. So, basically, um, I absolutely love box music, as most people do, right? Mm. And this kind of interest of mine began when I started thinking about what it is about box music that makes it in many ways totally unsurpassable like what is it about Bach that makes him so great and obviously that's a question that I'm certainly not prepared to answer but uh, one thing I have uh, identified is that in Bach there's this perfect balance between uh, architecture and expression so um, Bach is a very rigorous composer and that um, he has very uh, self-consistent processes that he follows in his music or, or systems that he uses. Um, for example, if he's writing a fugue, there's all kinds of uh, objective structure, architecture in that uh, the Goldberg variations are a great example in which he writes every third variation, the canon uh, at the unison, at the second, at the third, and so on. Um, so, you know, the uh, triple cannon, uh, the 14 canons on the Goldberg base, uh, all, you know, examples are everywhere. But at the same time, he's written some of the most expressive music that's ever uh, been imagined and basically my my instinct is to say that that balance is kind of at the core of what great art is. Um, but I kind of have have uh, become a little bit more wary of that conclusion um, when I take a look at some of the 20th century composers who really explored the extremes of those two ends, like you have people like um uh, Pierre Boulez, for example, who, or uh, Milton Babbitt, who go way into the objective side of things, uh, like Boulez's uh, structures, one and two, for example, are almost totally systematized. It's basically a mathematical formula. Uh, you know, Milton Babbitt, you know, with with uh, all of his serial techniques, incredibly objective. And then you have people like Feldman or Cage who are just totally composing subjectively, There's no system. So... Uh, I'm a little bit, you know, <laughs> I'm not prepared to uh, reject those two extremes as uh, unartistic, but uh, you know, so it's a, I'm in a state of confusion on the question right now, but <laughs> it's very interesting to me.
1: I mean, I have a couple of thoughts. I mean, one thing that I've I've read is, you know, how often um, aleatoric music and then music in which you have absolute control ends up sounding the same to the listener. But I thought it was a bit right. interesting.
2: <laughs> yes, definitely, like um, Cage's music of changes. In which it's totally random, totally chance procedures, and he just takes all the notes, the rhythms, the timbres from the book of changes, the the I Ching, mm-hmm. um, and then Boulez's structures sound very similar to a right. musical or non-musical ear. Mm-hmm. Boulez's structures and the music of changes sound almost the same. It's right. notes all over the piano. Uh, there's no pitch structure that's recognizable. So yeah, that's fascinating.
1: I mean, a- another thing. I mean, you talk about you know the balance between the I guess, you know, the logical and the emotional, the structural and the irrational. I mean, and one thing I think is interesting is kind of how these polarities end up being pretty similar. But I, I think perhaps to most listeners, they don't touch them or move them as much. Whereas in the balance, in that very small range in which you actually balance logic and emotion, I feel like there's so much diversity in that. I mean, you have such a wide range of, of art literature, I mean, actual architecture and music. I mean, I, that, I yeah. think that might be pretty interesting.
2: I think kind of the confusion that results when you start looking at the 20th century stuff is that the system that, that Bach and Beethoven and Brahms and Mozart and Haydn all used that gave it this architecture was tonality. And then when mm-hmm. that's subverted, you're now kind of swimming in a, in a subjective sea of chromaticism and, you, and some composers found ways of, of erecting some structures for themselves and others didn't. So it becomes kind of strange. I agree with you, though, that, that within that uh, balance, that equal balance, there's an infinite Range of possibilities. You know, it's not just Bach. It's you know all the composers have that have that balance for sure. So, do you think that the the essence of twenty first century music is to uh, kind of do away with the concept of a you know a school like the New York School or the the Second Viennese School? You know, and and basically follow one's own interests because that seems like what's happening in some sense.
1: Well, You know, I, I, I've been torn on this because i really do support some sort of globalization of music so one thing that i personally am a huge advocate for is the incorporation of the music of um, non-western cultures into the, the western music like i mean there's i feel like there's so much material to be to be derived from folk songs i mean if, if we see bar talk or or Martinu, so many composers who derive so much material from these folk songs. I think there's something to say about the long-lasting power of folk song having been cold through the um, centuries or millennia as it is. And so I mean, on the one hand, I think that subjectivity in art is always is, is a is a very good thing. On the other hand, I'm always wondering whether art is moving in a certain direction by itself, like whether you know, art moves by itself as a entity or whether it's something that's made up by humans and it, and, it's, and its direction is something that we construct. So, I mean, what were your thoughts on that?
2: Yeah, I mean, would you say that, um, what do you, do you mean by that, that um, art has an independent life from history or, or would you say that it is, it is grounded to its historical time? You're just saying that it has like a life of its own in some way?
1: Not, not, not quite. I mean, I definitely think that art is, art tends to be very related to, history and politics in general. Yeah. What, I, what I mean is that kind of like, whether there's some sort of direction. I, I think I, I do say that like some sort of direction that art would take by itself or whether it's more like something that individual humans influence.
2: Right, right. In other words, like, you know, if I'm a composer, I look to, you know, uh, the composers before me and I take it to a new direction in a certain, uh, in a certain continuous path. Yeah, precisely. Yeah, I mean, I think that's certainly the way it has been, mm-hmm. but I think that, um, I think that that may be dissolving currently. I think that might be the major defining feature of, of music today is that uh, that notion of having a, a path that goes somewhere, you know, that's composed of many, many people and artists is, is kind of turning into just a sea of different ideas that are just kind of being thrown out there. And, actually, and I think that as you pointed out, yeah, go ahead. Oh, no, sorry.
0: Um, to follow up on what Marco was saying earlier about kind of, uh, you know, world music, uh, coming into the classical music world, uh, a few of my favorite, like modern composers, uh, Kapustan, uh William Bolcom, they're incorporating um, some jazz elements into the classical idiom. Um, and that is a super cool fusion that's going on that probably would never happen in uh, previously to, to now. So it, it's really, it's really cool to see the kinds of different voices and different musical languages that are Be incorporated into kind of the larger classical world. um, And the larger acceptance uh, and inclusivity of the musical harmonies and languages is I think much overdue.
2: Definitely, for sure. I mean, to talk about a driving force uh, that guides music, I would say synthesis is definitely a major one of of, um, the late 20th century and, and 21st century. And I think jazz definitely plays a big role in that for sure, um, in, terms of, in terms of classical composers, definitely. Um, I know that Elliot Carter, uh, my personal musical hero, was very uh, influenced by jazz uh, in, his, in his early uh, years, and he was interested in this concept of improvising a very um, free, uh, expressive line over a much more uh, steady or simplistic uh, uh, foundation that he heard in jazz, and he kind of incorporated that into his idiom, for sure.
0: And do you think that knowledge of musical theory and historical context uh, is necessary to appreciate the music itself?
2: That's a really good question, yeah. Um, To what extent is uh, art its own little self-contained world and then to what extent do you need to look at it? I mean, I'd say as a performer personally, I always like to know as much as possible about the the context of a piece. like for example I'm, i was working on Shostakovich's first cello concerto recently and i've been trying to you know read as much about Shostakovich and his life and his time um and that certainly can give insight to a piece um then on the other hand i think that oftentimes the goal of an artist is to create uh a self-contained world in which one can kind of step in uh and remove themselves from uh the rest of, of people in the world um i think it also varies by composer like some composers are very interested in creating a a very spiritual separate thing and others not so much so like for example um the music of Bach or like Morton Feldman for example or like in the painting world Mark Rothko or Barnett Newman we're all very interested in creating very separate um abstract worlds and i don't think if you're interpreting a, a Feldman piece or a Bach piece you really need to know the politics of Germany at the time Bach was writing or you know an America in the 1970s. But I think that uh, other composers are definitely grounded in in the times like you know Beethoven for example uh, if I'm not mistaken incorporated several revolutionary songs in the uh, Eroica yep. Symphony. You know so things like that definitely enrich your experience of the of the piece for sure.
1: What do you think is the to, to talk about Bach and Feldman and you know Beethoven, well, I think it's the difference between the composer's intentions and and what we hear.
2: That's interesting. I think with Bach, that's probably the greatest mystery in music for sure, given how little he left behind. But I mean, what what are you asking specifically? That basically. Um, there's a, is, you know, is there a disconnect between what listeners experience and what the composers meant, or how can you remove that disconnect?
1: The the, the first question, yeah. Is there a disconnect?
2: Yeah. I see. Right, right. I mean, for Bach, I think there definitely is just because basically everybody's taking guesses. Um, Mm -hmm. Like for example, as a cellist, the eternal question of Boeing's and the Bach cello suites, basically uh, all cellists around the world sit down with the Bach manuscripts and try to interpret, uh, Anna Magdalena Bach's little tick marks, which are supposed to be Boeing's and nobody knows what the heck they mean. So, um, you know, that's that's one thing. I think that you can also learn a whole lot, like the historical performance movement has definitely brought us closer to Bach's intention. Um, And I think that improves the quality of the performances. I used to love like Rostropovich's Bach, which is obviously great, but I now am more into the kind of historical stuff because I think that that brings out more in the music. then with the living composers or composers who, you know, had more well-documented intentions. Um, I think that it helps to, I, I mean, there's, there's always some kind of a disconnect, but it definitely helps to, to read about the composer and what they're most interested in doing as a performer. And then you can kind of get into their world, so to speak. But um, it's an interesting question, you know, how valid are interpretations of music that do deviate from the composer's original intentions? You know, I mean, I, just, I, No, sorry, go on. Rostropovich is Bach, you know, like a lot of people kind of passionately argue that that's wrong in some way. You know, I'm not inclined to do so myself, but it's an interesting question for sure.
1: Right, I think it's also interesting to consider, I mean, as as an observer, perhaps perhaps a visual art, I mean, perhaps you're seeing it in a completely different way than the artist intended. And is, does that mean that what you're seeing is included in the original work? I mean, I guess on that point, does, does the visual art exist in space or does it exist in what you see and also does music does music exist um, is that what's on the page does exist in space or was it what we hear does this exist in time and what, what are your thoughts on that
2: yeah, yeah yeah that's really interesting i think that the fact is that the uh it's what you hear it's what you see so in other words um most western composers have worked towards or worked in a in a in a tradition that holds the score as the art basically. And essentially it's a matter of interpretation and translation to get the score to the audience. So in that sense, they're, they're trying to make it the score, even though I think it is fundamentally what you hear. But I think what's interesting is that in the uh, 20th century, you have people who try to play with that. So like for example, Earl Brown was a composer in New York in the 1960s and 1970s. And he was really interested in the performers having almost like an equal role and the listeners having equal role in the music. It was something that was created right there. It wasn't just his score. So he had these open form pieces where the performers kind of got to choose what order things would be in in the piece and things like that. But um, yeah, I think it's definitely what happens in your mind. That's kind of the art itself. And um, as a result of that, many different ways of looking at the same thing are valid.
0: It's
1: Pretty interesting, right, to consider that that means that all of the I mean, myriad interpretations, I mean, millions or billions, if it's popular enough, I guess, um, of, of interpretations of, the, of, the, of that artwork are all actually what that artwork is. But surprisingly, not, but not what the person who created it. I guess that's the one thing that will never be that particular artwork since nobody will ever know it.
2: Yeah, well, I mean, I think I think that, you know, if you talk about Bach, for example, I, I don't necessarily think that there is something that uh, exists that is the art that nobody's gotten to yet. I think it's it's more of a participatory task mm-hmm. in which mm-hmm. there's this, Wide uh, a variety of people who are engaging with Bach's music that he wrote. And each of those people contribute a new thing to the dialogue about Bach's music. And you know, that, I think that's a very healthy atmosphere to be in rather than kind of striving for one, this was the composer's intention. I think that keeps it more alive.
1: I was wondering if you might be willing to recommend some, some, some artworks, maybe particularly music pieces that you might recommend to our listeners. That movie, yeah. in
2: particularly, maybe. Definitely, yeah. When it comes to the, uh, the 20th century, uh, this is very difficult to choose. Definitely big for me would be Elliot Carter. I would recommend probably his first string quartet, is, is mm-hmm. one of the pieces that I first heard, and I kind of uh, first fell in love with Carter um, after hearing that piece. Um, and basically, what I love about Carter is that he, he does this thing where he has totally different kinds of music at the same time. So that's like kind of his primary interest and it kind of stems from the music of Charles Ives and Henry Cowell where you have um, and a little bit Conlon Nankaro as well. Um, so, sorry,
1: can, you, can you talk talk a little bit more about, I mean, Cowell and Ives and what they did?
2: Yeah, definitely. So basically uh, in Greenwich Village, New York, just very uh, bohemian atmosphere of artists doing very different things. Uh, Ives is kind of the center of all of this. Ives is also Carter's neighbor for a while. Um, and basically Ives was totally uh interested in exploring his own musical curiosities he was an insurance uh and a seller so he didn't really have any obligation to uh to play stuff people wanted to listen to at the time and so he did a lot of very interesting uh revolutionary things and i think the most important for carter is that he explored well okay so there's this idea of unity uh in most of western music. So even if Bach writes, you know, four contrapuntal lines, the idea is that they all come together into this one uh, spiritual uh, unified element that says one thing, right? And then Ives kind of questions that and he has music like, you know, The Unanswered Questions, a very, uh, you know, popular example in which he has three different layers saying totally different things. The winds are asking the question, the horns answering it, strings of the uh, silent druids, and um, or uh, the fourth symphony is it? The fourth symphony is the big one? Is it Sorry, I don't know, verse. they're all big, but one of them is, is uh, you know, a huge example of this idea of uh, not counterpoint, it's like having totally different kinds of music happening at the same time, it creates this very complex effect. But, um, and then Carot, uh, in particular also made these player p- piano studies where he would uh, write out stuff that was kind of impossible to perform uh, live, but he would have like these long-range polyrhythms where um, two lines would be moving at just slightly different paces, and they would converge mm-hmm. at a couple points during the piece. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, both of those ideas are, are pretty big in Carter. So, like for example, at the very opening of the first string quartet, uh, the cello starts by playing this very expressive cadenza, um, and the rhythms are very irregular. And then as the cello is playing that cadenza, um, the viola enters with these regular, very percussive pizzicato notes, totally different character. Uh, And then the violin enters with this very lyrical passage way up in the high register, Um, and that continues. And like, for example, his his second string quartet has four different characters. Each one has like a different uh, set of intervals they use and a different set of emotional uh, profiles. So it's like a play i actually think of it as a play i think he really added something to western music with that um, that wasn't really seen beforehand so far
1: so far so listeners listeners are coming to I, I have carter and i have for the first time and are experiencing these elements of having completely two different things juxtaposed on each other what sorts of elements might you point out that they listen to and also what's your own personal experience when processing this sort of music as a listener
2: definitely yeah so it's it's a very challenging thing and it's something that that I'm not even be- uh, I haven't even begun to scratch the surface of for sure. It's so challenging. I remember my first um, experience with Carter was I went to this string quartet performance. They played you know like Mozart, Beethoven, something like that. And they had like a little Q and A at the end, and they were talking about repertoire they wanted to do in the future. And I remember the cellist was really gung ho, like he wanted to play Carter, and the other people were like, oh boy, like <laughs> we probably should not do this. Um, but anyways, he was describing these pieces and I was absolutely fascinated. He was like, yes, yeah, so you got multiple tempos at once. And, you know, each each instrument's a different character. And, and I was like, how is this possible? So I remember I went home and listened to the first string quartet. And my first response is just utter confusion, for sure, by this music. Because it's just so different from anything else. And it's so incredibly complicated. I think the best thing that a listener can do, though, is number one, to recognize that um, Well, I think the best thing when you're approaching a composer is kind of to boil down what is this composer really all about? Um, And that helps you kind of get into their music a little bit. Um, And I think Carter's all about drama. So if a listener is approaching a string quartet, really listen to it as a play with four people and they're talking to each other. It's not like a traditional piece of music where everybody's playing something like a dinner party or a play. And uh, the cello might make one dramatic gesture and then the violin will respond to that or the viola will respond to that. So um, kind of almost boiling down to one word can help as a listener, I think, uh, orient yourself. Also, I think just hearing it, uh, you know, kind of orients your ear to the, to the sound and the harmonic language. No, there I, was a while I, when I was a little bit like, when I was kind of trying to figure out Carter, when hmm. I really didn't, I, I didn't see the uh, emotional element of it and of, of a lot of other uh, non-tonal music. In other words, like it all sounded kind of angry to me. Mm-hmm. Um, yes very dark and angry Um, if you're listening with Mozart ears or Brahms ears all of Schoenberg and Carter is going to be very dark and angry sounding but that's really not the essence of it you kind of have to change your approach and rather than listening out for the dissonances and associating that with kind of chaos and anger listen out to what each individual voice is doing and how they're kind of reacting to each other and there's there's a whole range of emotions there.
1: You know this is really interesting this this reminds me of and so in, in Aristotle's Poetics, he talks about the primary importance of plot above all things, but then in the 20th century, obviously, we get a the disillusion with plot, and then the primary importance is placed on the character with playwrights like Samuel Beckett and other modernist authors, and so I think it's interesting how we have this mirror in the same time periods, roughly, with Samuel Beckett playing the emphasis on characters, and I mean, this was done, I think, well, way before in, in the East, but anyway, in the West, but I guess he came to this later, and then in, in um, Carter, we have these four four characters interacting with each other, talking with each other, but there's not so much the plot in and of itself, it's more of the dialogue, right?
2: Definitely, yeah. In, in literature, definitely, there's, there's a lot of kind of radically different and somewhat uh, destructive approaches to the concept of plot, for sure. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, you know, for example, in Joyce, um, you know, Ulysses is a book that's really about one day, nothing really happens in Ulysses. I'm currently struggling to read that book right now. Um, you know, nothing really happens. The plot's not particularly interesting. It's about the characters. Obviously, his Finnegan's wake, you know, does away with plot almost entirely. Um, and you brought up a good point with Samuel Beckett. Um, and just a totally different approach to this idea of time. Um, like, for example, Marcel Proust was a, a big influence for Carter. I'm not at all familiar with Proust's work, but... Yeah, I guess it's, right. yeah.
1: I, I, would, I would say a, a bit about him. I know that many people who've read his... It remembers the remembrance of things past. Say that it's one of the most influential books um, that they've ever ever read by readers from from all waves of life from all different backgrounds. Because it, it, um, it has them see the world in a fundamentally different way. The idea that things that are remembered can you cannot truly really remember something, you can only remember the last time you remembered it. And anyway, to remember something you have to experience it again.
2: Memory becomes a big thing when it mm-hmm. comes to uh, structuring pieces over time rather than necessarily having this storyline and mm. that's something that's um it's almost more geared toward the visual arts this is where i think feldman comes in is another one of my favorite composers of all time and he was very interested in uh music that's not plot oriented he called them time canvases in mm. which basically um he he was more thinking about painting almost uh and creating that kind of a world. Um, and a lot of his pieces are within this very textural time canvas um, in which nothing, you know, there's no climaxes, there's no, you know, resolutions. Um, he's interested in memory. He'll play one thing and then do something just a little bit different later on. And it plays with your mind in these really interesting ways because, you know, you don't know, is that really what I heard earlier? And it introduces this idea of, of memory being a fundamentally abstract thing. And it's pretty cool, I think. He wrote this piece called Triadic Memories, which is particularly concerned with that.
1: Well, one thing I, that I might ask you is the ways in which art um, influences our perception of time. I mean, I, 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 for composers like like Messiaen, who attempts to kind of suspend time entirely or fill up glass to try to hypnotize us. So I would think maybe if you could speak about, speak about, speak about this a little bit.
2: Yeah, I mean, for me, it just makes me appreciate. Uh, time on a kind of smaller scale i think like going to the symphony or going to a museum or something is kind of an opportunity of escaping the fast pace of normal everyday life and entering into a world in which time is very very important Mm -hmm. um in which every second is like an event that you experience which is not how we normally experience time i think that's actually very enriching so like for example um you know, and every person approaches this differently, but, you know, reading Joyce, reading 1100 pages or whatever it is, 700 pages about one day, makes you appreciate a day a lot more, you know, than you normally would, because you realize what happens in a day. So I I think it it kind of allows you to zoom in on time a little bit, which is pretty interesting um, to experience. Feldman also does that, you know, with such long pieces, um, you get this totally different concept of of time, I mean normally you don't spend two hours listening to one thing, you know, just focusing on one type of music or one texture and I think it just gives you more focus and a little more appreciation for everything that happens in your life.
0: Right. What kind of advice would you give to people who wanna get into uh, modern classical music like Carter uh, that you're talking about? Um, do you think the point is to try to understand it or do you think it's more of a, a listening
2: experience I definitely think starting from the listening experience is is the way to go. I mean, I think that for a lot of the very hardcore modernists um, in order to really fully understand them, which I certainly don't, you need to, you know, get out the score and really dive into them. But yeah, I think definitely the way to start is just to, to uh, figure out what ears you need to uh, appreciate a piece. In other words, a lot of people think of, of, um, music or entertainment as something that's given to you, right? And I think a better approach when you're dealing with new types of music is to think about, okay, here's the music. Now let me experiment with different ways of listening to it and see which one yields the most fruit. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's definitely a creative process. You know, you have to try out all kinds of different ways of thinking about the music and eventually you kind of learn which set of ears works for which composer. So like if I'm listening to Bach, I have a totally different set of ears than I'm listening to Chopin or Carter. And I think that the challenge in approaching new music is that the first time you hear it, you're going to have the wrong set of ears on necessarily because mm-hmm. it's new. So I think just kind of opening your mind to uh, to listening in new ways is the is the way to go. And absolutely that listening experience is the most important thing.
1: As we're actually going to ask you, obviously, I think as humans we have a tendency to stick to the known. I mean, all the way back from, I mean, when we were when we're ape, that sort of thing. But um, it's uh, one thing I, I might ask you is um, how do, what sort of advantages do you see for listeners uh, trying to seek out this new music? Maybe things are outside their comfort zone. What sort of insights do you think might be able to gain, maybe on themselves, on life, or just maybe sheer listening joy? I mean, I would love to hear what you think about that.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think that it gives you a, well, it makes you think deeper and it gives you a deeper appreciation for the fundamental elements of art and uh, life and, and everything. So for example, in music, if you uh, listen to a whole bunch of new types of sounds in music, you then see the other stuff in a totally different light. So I think that's one of the most enriching elements of, of kind of experiencing a broad range of approaches. So mm-hmm. for example, if, you know, exploring all these 20th century composers like, you know, Feldman and Boulez, Boulez and all this definitely gave me a greater appreciation for Bach and for his craftsmanship and how, you know, those composers really came from Bach in, in some way. So I think it it uh, constantly changes the way you see the old when you experience the new.
1: One thing I think is might be interesting is how a lot of the stuff that's happened in the West recently with the suspensions of time and all of these dissolutions of plot are things that haven't done for millennia and in many other world cultures and I, I this kind of makes me wonder whether this means that there's some sort of trend towards some maybe 200 300 years who am I to give a time scale but some sort of globalization of the arts in which these different some sort of can music so I mean what are your thoughts for the future of the arts
2: I definitely think that it'll just continue to get more synthesized and more uh, global in nature, for sure. I think that's a very consistent trend that's just slowly increasing. I think there's a lot of interesting uh, results of that, for sure. One of the the things that um, one of the organizations I'm most inspired by is the, called the Silk Road Project. I don't know if you've oh, heard yes. of it. but yes, it's of course, uh, Yeah, Yo-Yo Ma is the uh, founder of it. Mm-hmm. And I just love listening to their stuff because um, it is the definition of cultural synthesis. And um, there's musicians from all these different... Um, Traditions and musical cultures who are uh, you know, sharing their ideas and their insights and the various approaches of that particular world music. And mm-hmm. I think that is probably the closest uh, uh, predictor we have for what music might look like in the future, for sure. Mm-hmm.
0: Great. And what advice would you give to people who are both passionate about music and have many deep academic interests? Uh, kind of what was your experience like balancing your time uh between your musical passion and physics, for example, of math
2: yeah definitely- that was definitely a big uh question for me and i uh definitely went back and forth on what I wanted to do I think probably like um, as as uh recent as like one or two years ago, I definitely seriously considered going into music like uh, at a conservatory style situation um And I think the advice I would give somebody who is in that position um, would be to imagine uh, not exploring all the things that you would explore, you know, intellectually at a university per se. And uh, for me, that was kind of what what led me to the decision to go that route, because I couldn't really uh, imagine not diving into all these fields that I'm interested in. And for me, that was was worth it, uh, even though you sacrifice the kind of, conservatory-style music education.
0: Uh, so, Jack, thank you so much for your time. Uh, it's been a real pleasure to have you here with us and share your stories. Thank you, guys. Your stories.
2: Yeah, this is awesome. I learned a lot. It's a very interesting conversation. Oh, same here it is.
0: If you want to contact Jack after the show, you can find him at jrgalahan11 at gmail.com. And signing off, this is Full Cadence. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram And feel free to contact us via fullcadencepodcast at gmail.com.